0: want to ditch feature dumping build trust and earn the opportunity to become your prospects trusted guide then say hello to the influential communicator newsletter now listen my friend my intention is clear because with one actionable weekly email keyword actionable my goal is to transform you into a captivating storyteller communicator and presenter so if this is a bit of you then head on down to www.theinfluentialcommunicator.com to register now and by the way if you do sign up know that you'll also receive my free guide on how to craft a punchy and high converting elevator story i'll see you on the other side Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Many, many years ago, Todd Capone was a mere mortal, working in the C-suite for a company called Power Reviews. And one morning, Todd and his leadership team were sitting around a table and they said, hold on, I wonder how many buyers interact with websites versus salespeople when making purchasing decisions. And boom, just like that, man, the research was commissioned and Northwestern University were leading the way. And what's dope about this piece of research is that three Very interesting insights were uncovered, okay? The first one being social proof is critical in helping somebody de-risk their purchasing decision. But you already knew that, all right? So let's get to number two. 85% of us read negative reviews first. I'm a sucker for that. You're a sucker for that. I know you are. Don't lie to me, okay? Number three, when a product has an average review score of 4.2 to 4.5 out of five, that is the most optimal score for conversion versus a perfect five out of five score. So Todd said, hold on. But does this notion of imperfection winning the day actually hold in human to human selling? And the science pointed to one thing, leading with your flaws, being transparent about them and unapologetically owning them is the key to building trust and earning the opportunity to guide somebody from pain to glory. And hey, as Arthur Dunn once said, if the truth won't sell it, then don't sell it, man. Don't sell it. He didn't say man. I'm saying that, but maybe he did. Who knows? But anyway, a few twists and turns later, born was Todd's book, The Transparency Sale, later followed by The Transparent Sales Leader and enter Todd's career as a speaker, author, and consultant. And today, people, I'm hanging out with the dude himself to discuss the art of transparent negotiation. Welcome to the show, brother. What's good?
1: I have been really looking forward to this, genuinely. Like You're one of my favorite people, and uh, this is gonna be a fun fun conversation.
0: Yeah, man, me too. The feelings are mutual, brother, the feelings are mutual. And as I was reading more about your story and what you stand for, it got me thinking about the movie, Eight Mile. Have you seen the movie, Eight Mile?
1: Absolutely, yep, that rap battle is a perfect example.
0: Right, I think that rap battle, the last one that B-Rabbit, AKA Eminem engages in, perfectly describes what you stand for. Am I right or wrong?
1: Yeah, there's like a whole pile of stories like that. I don't know if anybody's a Seinfeld fan, but if you remember the scene where George decides he's going to do the opposite all day because everything that he tends to want to do has terrible results and there's a woman at the bar and she looked at him, so he walked up and basically just unloaded saying, hey, I'm unemployed, I'm bald, and I live in my parents' basement my name is George. And she's like, hi, right? Like it's one of those stories that's just like it, where when you lead with transparency, you disengage people, you open up that conversation with a bed of trust and things start to flow from there.
0: It's so true, man. It really is. And it it does get me thinking about the following thing where I often find that what people stand for is often the very strict thing, rather, in life that they once struggled with. So I am curious to know for you, if we had to think about the villain in everything that, you know, in your client's story as the concept of pretending to be perfect. I'm curious to know for you, was there ever a moment in your life where you found yourself pretending to be perfect and how did that work out for you
1: well so let's start crying no i'm kidding no there was a uh, a startup that i went to you know back in yeah. the late 90s i had some great sales performance right like 1999 i did 872 percent of my number and i thought i was the best person of all time and it was at a time i was working at sap where it was literally like You were working at a drive-through, and companies would just drive through the window and throw cash in, right? Like working at SAP in the late '90s was so easy. I didn't realize that. I thought I'm awesome. And at the time, there was a bunch of these like internet millionaires that were popping up. Like it didn't matter what you sold. If you had a garage and it was technology, then and it had .com on it, like go public, billions of dollars. Like hey, everybody. So I'm sitting there at SAP. I did 872% of my number on a capped comp plan, horrible. And as a result, I'm watching all these millionaires and I'm like, I'm better than them. So I went to a startup and it was a technology company that was in the procurement space. My first client opportunity was with a big financial services firm. What we did is it was consulting first. So it was me and then our consultants went out. We spent 10 days with this client. When we came back, it was pretty clear we couldn't help them. And so the client asked, and I was like, hey, listen, we're not set up to be able to address the things that you need right now. Like, I don't think this is going to work. Here's a couple of things we can do. But what I would suggest is if you wanted to sign, we can do it. We'll catch up. Like, there was a bunch of things that I said. I get in the car to head home from Virginia. I live in Chicago. I call my boss and I'm like, hey, listen, here's the result. Here's what happened. This is not a fit right now. I know we just spent a lot of time, but it's not going to work. And he was like, Todd, you did the right thing. Like, cool. Thank you. Next day, we have our sales team meeting. Everybody on the phone together. His boss is on the phone. And in front of everybody, he tells the story of what I did and rips me to shreds. And he's just like, listen, we are a startup. We've got to get these deals done. If it's not a match, you figure out how to make it a match. You figure out how to position it so it is a match because we need these customers to sign. We'll figure it out later. And I literally got ripped on in front of all of my peers for telling the truth. And I literally, I was shaking afterwards and I was like, I've made a horrible decision. I talked to a couple of my buddies that work there and I was like, I don't care what the market's doing right now. I'm out. And I ended up quitting the next day because I couldn't take that. And so like that was one of those things that like that decision to leave, in hindsight, was, that was a big deal for me because I've always been, like you said in that intro, like Arthur Dunn said, if the truth won't sell it, then what are we doing? Don't sell it, right? And so that's the first time I've told that story in years. So I'm so happy that you asked that. But being asked to lie in, to my customers, not just one-on-one, but in front of all of my peers... That was the end, man. And that's no way to live. And surprisingly enough, that company doesn't exist anymore.
0: Ugh, I mean, I didn't expect you to say that. That's beautiful storytelling, by the way. Can I just okay. say the way Todd added that unpredictable message inside of his his arc? Beautiful. I digress. So what, man? That's insane that he played you like that. That's, I'm actually angry because I would I would feel absolutely dumbfounded i mean it does get me thinking though because you said you've always been wired that way and i am curious to know your perspective on the following quote we can't be what we can't see so was there an early mentor who was operating in a way that was congruent with your values which showed you the way or did you actually were you the trailblazer
1: i mean that's a really good question dude these are great so i'll tell you like first of all my dad so he's been gone for okay. a while. He lived to almost 98 years old, which is incredible. But like wow. I used to, you know, I wrote the, the book, The Transparent Sales Leader, and I dedicated it to him as the original transparent sales leader. Like I grew up with him and, you know, he worked a lot. He worked at like, he brought his work home, kitchen table was always get home, eat dinner, and then put the papers out. And he's working. But I never thought that that was weird because, like, what did I know? But when we would go out and, Interact with people that worked for him, that worked with him. He was always that way. Like that was just his demeanor. And so you grow up thinking, hey, work hard. Like that's, I learned that from my dad to see that. But you also learn so much as a kid, it influences the way that you think about business when your dad is doing it. You're interacting with him and you're watching the way that he interacts with everybody else. He used to issue little newsletters to the whole sales organization and the newsletters had things like that little like they would make you lots of jokes but lots of transparency in the way that he wrote these things and i think that that was really the foundation of it is kind of like he was my sales mentor without even realizing it that the second piece of that is you know i grew up in sales at sap in the late 90s when again there was this for anybody that's not familiar with that period of time there was this concern that at midnight on January 1st, 2000, all of the machines and everything in the world that was built on two-digit years was going to go from 99 to 00 and suddenly explode. And like planes would fall out of the sky and bombs are like, it was going to be nuts. And as a result, in the late 90s, everybody was trying to replace their entire back end, like their entire, like the core of all of their technology. And that's why the phone was ringing. I went into 1999 with a $3 million target going, how am I going to hit this? And I ended up at over 27 million, right? Like it was that kind of a year. But SAP, I just always felt like did it right. And I was surrounded by individuals that were just cool to be around and created relationships where they were truly focused on customer outcomes, not their own. And as a result, we would win not only because our technology was superior, but I think we differentiated in the way that we sold. And I always looked at that as kind of a beacon. Wow,
0: man, that's incredible. And I know that you've got two kids as well. So what you've just told me in that story was your father never said, son, do this, do that. He was showing you through his behavior and that's what you absorbed. So I can almost guarantee you operate in a similar way with your family. And, you know, one thing I really want to acknowledge you for is, When you communicate, you have a high level of confidence and conviction in your message. And you use an interesting phrase, which is confidence is contagious. And you reference this to when salespeople and leaders are asking the following question at the start of a buying experience. How does your pricing work? So the question is, is why do people struggle to answer that question with bulletproof confidence in your opinion?
1: You know, it's funny that, um, so the other thing about me that we haven't brought up is when cool people are doing cool things, like on the weekends, I'm reading late 1800s, early 1900s books and magazines on sales and sales leadership. I've got a, what I'm I'm basically building a museum of sales. I just, I'm scouring, like literally when we go on trips, I'm like, oh, antique shop. And I go run through and see if there's any old sales books I can find. I found some amazing ones there. But You know, there's been this traditional type of approach to the way that we discuss pricing that comes, there's a quote from 1926. It's horrible. Like, I I hate it. But it says, don't share the price until the customer thinks it's more. That's the foundation of which sales was founded that, hey, listen, you know, the price shouldn't matter. It should be value, 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 value. That's actually not the way our brains work, though right? Our brains, we as human beings, we're prediction machines, right? Like we don't buy when we're convinced, or we do, we're probably pissed about it 20 minutes later. We buy when we can predict. And that prediction is, hey, is the juice going to be worth the squeeze? Now, if all I'm hearing is how great the juice is and how tasty and nutritious it is, but I have no idea what it's going to take for me to get it. Like, am I going to have to freaking squeeze a bunch of like, that sucks, right? Like if I don't know that, as a, the, Every positive that's going into my brain is going through kind of a BS filter. That's just like, all right, what's the downside? That to your intro is why we as human beings, we go to the negative first when we're buying something online that we've never bought before that matters, right? We read the fours, threes, twos, and ones before the fives. We need to know that. And so, so often when a customer is saying, hey, listen, can you give me an idea of how this thing is priced and what I should be expecting here? They're trying to predict. They're trying to understand. They're trying to classify all that goodness you're about to share with that squeeze. And so I always, you know, first is the way you answer that is typically to provide a range, right? And even for what I do today, I get that all the time. Like, before we get too deep into this, can we talk pricing? Like, I haven't even talked about what I do yet. Like, hey, listen, for my programs, they're typically between X and Y. And based on my understanding of your organization and or what you're trying to do, that's probably a pretty good range. However, that's based on some assumptions we're gonna to have to get deeper. But if that between X and Y, if we're way off, let's talk about that now before we get too deep into this. And the bottom line is like, if you're selling a six figure solution to a four figure buyer or vice versa, one of you's in the wrong discussion. Like, get out quickly. That's number one. And then number two is confidence is contagious, right? So often, we've never been taught that. We've we've never been taught to share that way. We've been taught the old school way, which is a massive problem, right? And as a result, we end up getting stuck thinking, oh, I can't talk about the price. But then number two, the number two reason a lot of times comes from leadership, that leaders so often believe that, hey, listen, if you've got an empty pipeline, you must suck. And as a result, salespeople are so often afraid to lose quickly when, in fact, they should be rewarded for losing quickly. Like Winning is the greatest thing in the world. Losing quickly is second best. And oh, if I share the price and I haven't shared the value yet, I might lose this deal. That's all right, right? You build trust. You help the customer to predict. And so I've always been an advocate for this idea that give them a range early because the term sticker shock has never been associated with anything positive in the history of humankind.
0: (laughs) Yeah, preach bro. And it's funny, you talk about the idea of giving the range, having that conversation early on and ensuring that you're not selling a six or seven figure solution to a four or five figure buyer. I'm curious to know this from you. If I look at my own life, the more inner work I've done to heal insecurities, overcome limiting beliefs and really get comfortable in my own skin, the better speaker I've become, the better storyteller I've become, the better salesperson I've become. And that the byproduct of that is being more comfortable with silence, disqualifying somebody, saying no. So I'm curious to know if a seller is green early on in their career and they are being told a specific narrative from leadership that doesn't align with their value system. What type of inner work do you feel that they should be doing early on to stand their ground and unapologetically operate in a way that is
1: transparent? That's a tough one because, I mean, if you're early in your career, like, you know, my first sales job in tech was with a company that was notoriously known for kind of driving their salespeople into the ground. Really? I remember one time, and I was, the company, it's, I'll share it. It's Computer Associates, uh, CA, also known as Creative Accounting. Bad joke. But their president went to jail for a while for doing some shady things. But the point is, I worked there very early in my career. I didn't know any better, right? I thought this was what sales was supposed to be. I did really, really well. Like if you looked at the central region, I was number one rep. And I remember one time, I don't remember who I was talking to. It might have been my parents or something. And my boss walks by and is like, is that a personal call? Hang it up. Like, you know, that kind of environment was the way that I was brought up. But I mean, the good news is I could create those relationships with my customers where they trusted me. And I, it was just kind of a natural, like, Hey, listen, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. This is what we give up to be great at our core. This is what you're getting. This is what you're not getting. Here's the risks that are going to be associated with the journey to get to it. And if you're not up for that, cool. Like that was always my MO. And i sold better than other people, right? The idea that the leaders would struggle with that when the performance was there, that went away really, really quickly. That guy that yelled at me, I got to the point where I could just talk trash to him and that confidence became <laughs> contagious too, right? Where like, he's like, you know, if that is that a personal phone call? I'm like, yeah, it's your wife. Like, she wants you to call her back. Like, you know, he makes, like, terrible jokes like that. And he couldn't yeah, do anything yeah. about it. But he started to see that what I was doing was working. Mm. And as a result, that started to ooze into the team. So, gosh, if you really believe in something, you got to embrace it. Because when you wake up in the morning and you're doing something that you don't believe and that doesn't feel right, man, I know the economy's tough. I know that finding other jobs is probably not super easy right now. But you got to think the long game. Just like that story I told where I was asked to lie in front of my peers to a customer. I quit without a job in a time where you know right after that that was 2000 2001 after the bubble had already burst I went running back to SAP afterwards cuz they at least had jobs but I would rather do that than do something that I didn't feel comfortable with so a sneak it in and have the success and be able to share that and if that's not allowable b for sure you got to go find some place that aligns with your beliefs otherwise That long game is going to be miserable. Like you got to get to it.
0: Yeah, I feel you, brother. And it's funny. I can imagine if I put myself in your shoes, having to go back to SAP and somebody saying, hey man, what happened in that tech job though? Having to tell that story, it must have really hurt in some ways. And a silent mentor once told me that ego stands for everybody's got one. And what's fascinating is it must have hurt the ego in so many ways. How did you approach telling the story of what happened? Were you just raw and transparent about it, or did you put a bit of fairy dust on it until you had really processed the emotions?
1: Such a good question, man. Like, because like at the time I was, I kind of I was still very young in my career, so I think I was yeah. pretty raw with. Like, they are yeah. asking me to lie. Let's look that guy, <laughs> and like the, the boss's boss. He came from SAP. Like, I knew him. I worked with him. I'd been at a Christmas party at his house before. Like, I, that guy that asked me to lie, I had known for years before that situation, right? And that's what made it so disappointing. So it was very, like, I didn't want to share that part. But over time, I stopped telling that story. Like I said, Ravi, you asked that question. I hadn't told that story in a long time. I used to tell it that, hey, you know, back when everybody was making a million dollars on the, uh, the internet, like dot-com, boom. I went and ran for that boat that had left the pier, and I went right in the water. And then when I got there, I ran it right in the ground. Like I started making like self-deprecating jokes about it over time and just ignored the fact that that happened because everybody saw it. It didn't take a genius to see that I was being asked to lie in front of my peers. And a couple of those peers were good buddies of mine who afterwards were like, what did he just say? Did I hear that the way you heard that? Like, we all... We all felt it. We all saw it. We all knew it. I didn't have to go share it, right? The company Mm. was like on the way down from that moment on either way. And so now I just make jokes about it typically.
0: It's funny because when you shared that story, I felt empathy for that version of you. I didn't feel sympathy. And I know you don't want my sympathy, right? And it's interesting in your book and in your work, you talk about the differences between sympathy and something that you coined clinical empathy. So talk to us about that for a second. What's the difference between the two and why is that important for sellers?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, just like you said, so often when we talk about the importance of empathy, the examples that are shared are sympathy, right? Like when COVID hit and there's so much of this, hey, you got to be empathetic. And then the empathy was, I hope you're doing okay during these trying times. That's not empathy. That's sympathy, right? Like stop it. Now when I talk about clinical empathy what I mean is for anybody that goes to medical school my understanding I haven't gone to medical school I wasn't that smart but you know you go to medical school and you spend a lot of time learning like you know the head bones connected to the neck bone like you learn all that stuff but they spend a lot of time with the psychology of empathy the psychology of clinical empathy which is to be a successful doctor it's not just about having as much knowledge medical knowledge as possible in your brain it's also about your ui you know the interactions that you have with those patients and being able to see the world through their eyes and almost experience the highs and lows with them to be able to understand empathetically if i were in your shoes here's the way that i would be thinking about it here's what i would want to know here's the risks that i should be preparing for here's what the Likely outcomes are, but here's also the downside, right? That's clinical empathy. And I believe that that's such an important skill for anybody that's got to influence anybody to do anything, i.e., the sales profession. That if we're able to go into situations and see the world through our customers' eyes and be able to experience the highs and lows with them and to be able to make recommendations like, I work for you or work with you versus I'm trying to sell you something. That's where success really starts to blossom. That's where confidence begets confidence. That's where transparency becomes really, really powerful when you can have that conversation like a partner instead of like a vendor.
0: Sales kickoff season is coming, people, and I love it, man. I love it because it's such an exciting time as a speaker, but for enablement professionals and revenue leaders, well... It can be kind of stressful, you know, and having delivered storytelling keynotes and workshops for revenue teams like NetSuite, Crunchbase and AB Tasty, I know it's not just about motivation and inspiration, but also about finding the right speaker who can educate your audience and spark a long lasting shift in behavior so hey if you are thinking about storytelling as a theme for kicking off your new fiscal year then head on down to www.theravirajani.com forward slash speaking to check out my speaker reel take a look at some of my topics and some customer stories to see if there's a fit and if there is then you can scroll down to the bottom and book an alignment call with me directly all right, let's get back to the show. Oh man, that piece around partnering with a somebody versus selling to somebody is so powerful. And I think I think it's it takes, as I said before, a certain level of inner work to be able to hold yourself in that way. And talking about holding yourself in that way, there's an interesting story that you have about being in a meeting with a packed room full of individuals from procurement and somebody saying, yeah, Todd, this all looks good, man, but we need a 35% discount. And this ties in beautifully with what you spoke about earlier with regards to the pricing and the ranges and whatnot. But in that moment, you were able to talk about the range, but you said something beautiful. You said, given the, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, given the context I have on your business, And given the levers that we can pull, I think I can get you there. And the room went silent. And what I'm fascinated to understand about that is you use the word levers, not variables. And I want to know why you call it levers, because I know you're intentional. So there's a reason behind that. And number two is, is what happened with that deal? Did you get, tell us, did you get them that 35% discount? What happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, so to give a little context on that, basically, you know, I had been a newly minted VP of sales and I was always a terrible negotiator, right? Like I always thought it was weird that I needed a different personality to negotiate than I did to sell, right? Like sales is about building a relationship, building trust, really focusing on helping customers achieve optimal outcomes. And then the customer says yes. And we're like, all right, cool. I'm going to start lying to you now. I'm not going to tell you what a good deal is. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to use techniques taught to me by former FBI hostage negotiators. Like, what no, you know, in the, the as-a-service or subscription economy, especially, but even with the blowhorn by which individuals can share their experiences, the deal is no longer the peak like it was in the 90s when so many of these techniques were developed, 80s, 70s, way back. The deal is an early milestone on the path to having customers who stay buy more, and become advocates for you. And they take you with you to their next company. And so this story that you told was me walking into a deal where my rep had been negotiating it, but procurement was getting frustrated because my rep kept having to call me. And they were finally like, could you get that guy you're calling down here? Let's get in a room. And so I walk in and yeah, they brought the whole procurement team. And it it was a multi-billion dollar company. This deal was a million and a half dollars a year. For three years. So it's not that big. Like I don't know why the whole procurement team had to be there. But yeah, to your point, essentially what I did is I saw this room that I wasn't expecting. And I just kind of went, Bleh! and I just threw out the variables or the levers of what drive our pricing model. And they happen to be the levers that drive the pricing model of every company that's for profit, right? And, and those levers are number one volume. So how much you buy, the more you buy. You know, the more product, services, technology you commit to, the better it is for us. Number two is the timing of cash, meaning the faster you pay, the better it is for us. We like money. Who knew? Number three is the length of commitment. So the longer you commit to our products, technology, services, that's better for us. And then number four is the timing of the deal or our ability to predict, our ability to forecast, our ability to resource is very valuable to us. If we can predict that, that's good for us. And to your point, yeah, they came right at me and they're like, Todd, we want to get this deal done, but we're 30% off. You could do a couple of things, right? You could go into that whole conversation around value, like, oh, we believe the value of this. this. Haven't we sold you on the value? Like, shut up. Like, that ship has sailed. You could do the ping pong method, which is, "Ah, I can't do 30, but I can do 10%. I don't even have to ask anybody. And they're like, ah, we can't do... We can't do 10. We need at least 20%. And you play ping pong until you end up somewhere in the middle and everybody celebrates, but you just gave away 15% of your deal in the form of charity to their bottom line. Now, what we did instead is to say, hey, listen, you know, those four variables, those four levers that we talked about, there might be an opportunity for us to get pretty close to that 30% you're looking to do, right? Commit to more volume, right? You got other divisions that are looking... Put them in here and we'll make the whole pie bigger and we'll pay you in the form of a discount to do that. Pay us faster, right? We're a small company. You got $18 billion of cash on your balance sheet. Pay the whole thing up front. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to do that, right? We don't have to go get another round of funding. We'll let you fund our business, right? That's awesome. We'll pay you for that. Commit to a longer term, right? The longer you commit, the better it is for us and the more we'll pay you in the form of a discount. Or number four, timing of the deal, Let's mutually align around when you can get this done, and if you can commit to your timing on this, and we'll work with you. They'll provide some flexibility, but our ability to forecast is so valuable, both in terms of our forecast to our investors, right? Who knew? But for us to be able to resource this deal, our ability to forecast that's so valuable that we'll pay you in the form of a discount to do that. Then we went through the percentages, and they ended up paying us three years up front, for a discount, and they helped us forecast, right? So we aligned around mutual timing, not the, "Hey, this weekend only," that kind of crap." They ended up signing the deal on time and paying us three years upfront cash. We gave away 15 percent of our deal for that, but we got value for every dollar we gave away in the form of a discount. And yeah, that deal came in on September 26th of 2008, I believe. So yes, that was a good day. Damn, brother. There's so many golden
0: nuggets in that. And you know what was coming up for me as you were talking, bro, is the concept of the scars of the past. Well, that's what I call it. Whereby, if somebody's been burned before on one of those levers, the sensitivity around it is going to be heightened. How do you personally understand the story that a buyer is telling themselves due to a scar of the past and then how do you overcome it first how do you identify it and then how do you overcome that in that situation
1: yeah i mean think about so so many of us that are doing especially the bigger deals with bigger companies you know one yeah. of the things that comes up so often is the concept of like in a, a contract negotiation termination mm. for convenience or an out clause just as an Go example ahead. right so that deal that i told you about, and this has happened a thousand times to me and many of your listeners, right? Is when we got the, we exchanged contracts, they had added a paragraph to the contract that said termination for convenience. And for anybody that doesn't know what that means, most contracts have warranty or termination for cause language. That basically says that if one of the parties breaches, the contract can be, you know, deemed null and void. So many of these Companies, though, they want to add this convenience clause that says, hey, we want to reserve the right to get out at any point for any reason, right? Like, we just want that ultimate flexibility that this company was in the oil services industry. they're like, hey, the oil services industry is unpredictable, so we need this clause, right? And so they pop that in there. And so part of that, you know, Ben Byrne thing is like, hey, the industry is unpredictable, so we need flexibility. That's number one. but you know, number two is we took that clause out, sent it back. they put it back in, sent it back, right? We played that ping pong game, finally, we get on the phone with the lawyers, and we're going through all the points, and we get to that paragraph and they're like, "Hey, we need this paragraph in there, right?" I' like, well, tell me a little bit more, like what's driving that?" And their answer was, "Well, we have it in all our vendor contracts, <laughs> bullshit, all right, but yeah, but they also said, "Hey, listen." When there is a problem, most of these things create so many barriers that it becomes very difficult for us to be able to actually execute on termination for cause or warranty language. And so that's the problem that we face. So that's why we want termination for convenience. Thinking about the levers again, you can use the levers for everything. After that human to human conversation, my answer was this, to say, hey, listen, as you remember, our pricing is based on four things. How much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit, and when you sign. Remember, we mutually aligned around that. The pricing that you have and the whole structure of this is based on your three year commitment to our products, technology, and services. If you want termination for convenience, you can have it, but you're probably not gonna like it because it basically renders that length of commitment moot, right? It becomes instead of a three-year deal, it's essentially a month-to-month. And your price would have to reflect that, and that is significantly higher. Now, before you freak out, though, let's look at the termination for cause and warranty language while we have the lawyers on the phone here and just make sure that you've got a comfort level with the flexibility you would have if somebody breaches, right? But if we're both doing our part here and you're having success, termination for convenience should be a one in a million risk. And I don't know if that's something that you're not willing to do, then we'll share the month to month pricing. Again, it's significantly higher silence. Like you said, complete silence. And I'm like IMing my rep, like, put your phone on mute. They got to be the next one to talk. But sure enough, they're like, ah, Chris was the rep. And they're like, Chris, could you send us that month to month pricing so we can look at it? But yeah, let's go to the termination for cause and warranty language and make sure we feel comfortable with that. Sure enough, termination for convenience went away, right? So the advice is for all of these things that come up, to your point, most of the reasons why they're asking for them is they've been burned right? The industry shifted and they couldn't get out of their contracts. They had a cause issue with a client. The termination for cause was too tightly worded and they couldn't get out, right? But those are the things that are driving so many of those things. So be a human being. But then if you can go back to those levers again, you'll end up having a conversation that makes sense because their business is run on the same levers yours are.
0: Mm, 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 mm. smoother than ryan gosling in the movie crazy stupid love you are mr capone <laughs> i don't, have you have you seen that movie by the way
1: i haven't i haven't and now i'm afraid to.
0: <laughs> oh man he is he's is too slick for words anyway i digress but no i love that brother and you know what's funny i was thinking about as you were talking my message around storytelling and your message around transparency and isn't it funny where you deliver a lot of speeches when you're delivering a speech or a presentation in the first few minutes if you deliver a personal story which humanizes yourself and the presentation it opens up the hearts and minds of people because you're leading with transparency and as a result it disarms everybody and they're so much more open to having you potentially guide them as I said from pain to glory isn't it it's so similar dude don't you think
1: yeah, it's funny. You know, I love, you know, Ravi, the part of the reason that I said yes to this so quickly is I just, I love what you talk about and I love the focus. And I've been such a long advocate for that approach, right? And what blows my mind, I don't know, like, I want to go back in history. I haven't found it yet as to when the traditional presentation choreography was designed that, you know, starts with, the mission slide, like, you know, we believe in a world of whatever. And then slide number two is all the awards that they've won, you know, like in, uh, we were the best in class in 2022, like, oh, good for you, you know, who won it in 2023, right? Like, and then there's a slide of all your locations, like, hey, we've got an office in Singapore. I know you don't, but we think it's cool. And then there's a slide (laughs) of your products and it's like your products and then it's got a circle around it, it's a solution. And then slide five is your logo slide, your NASCAR slide. Like, these are all the companies that... It's amazing to me that somebody designed that without going all the way back to the year 1620. 1620. Whoa!
0: 1620? Yes.
1: Sir Francis Bacon theorized the concept of what we know now as cognitive bias, which essentially says that we as human beings will take in all logic to support our pre-existing beliefs whether or not that logic actually supports our pre-existing belief or not. We'll take in something that supports it. We'll go, yes, I'm going to file that. I'm now stronger in my belief. When logic comes in that goes against my pre-existing belief, my brain will immediately go, here's why that's BS. Here's why that's not true. It'll configure an argument against it. And now you're even stronger in your previous belief anyway, right? Logic polarizes. And just like what I just said with those slides, Side note, like that joke I made about twenty twenty two vendor of the year. I had a client of mine that was in the antivirus space, and we, we did a little program around how do we re choreograph this thing. And uh, they wanted they sent me their slides, and sure enough, slide number two was their award slide. And I think this was early this was early twenty twenty, and on the slide it said we were best in class award winner for two thousand eighteen best antivirus solution, right? And so I take that from both. I'm a supporter walking in and I'm not a supporter walking in. And so as a supporter, I'm like, oh, that's impressive. There's a lot of companies in that space, like bravo. But then I did like not a supporter. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's like, congratulations. Hey, can you let us know who won it in 2019? Because apparently it wasn't you. And maybe we should be talking to them, right? Like that's the way that we've got to be thinking about logical arguments. The NASCAR slide the logo slide, like that's a case study all in itself, like how you can polarize an audience more quickly than any other slide. Throw a NASCAR slide early on your slides, right? It polarizes audience in amazing way. Now, like my approach, this is going to sound nuts, but it actually follows the choreography used in reality makeover TV shows, right? So reality makeover TV shows. Have you ever seen like Queer Eye or Restaurant Impossible or Extreme Makeover Home Edition or Bar Rescue or The Biggest Loser, they all follow the exact same choreography that not only tells a great story, but it is focused on making the individual, the participant, the hero, right? And it leads to the solution, not leading with it. All right. So hopefully, Robbie, you're with me here because like, Like you think about, I don't know, any of those familiar to you? Like Queer Eye, for example. Oh
0: yeah, bro. Like I love Tan France and I love, I love the whole crew. And I know what you mean by the sequence and the transformation, the storytelling, the five, is it five? Is it five of them or is it four of them? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, they are the guides. The beauty is in the transformation. And what's fascinating is, is the larger the gap, the bigger the transformation, the more emotion we feel for that character, right? right? It's, yeah. It's great. But
1: like, if you think about it, like if you think about it, what happens? Well, the, the individual has raised their hand, right? It's not yes. like the Fab Five are walking down the street going, wow, you're a terrible loser. Like, No, they raise their hand. Just, <laughs> like an in, you know, just like an inbound lead or somebody that agrees to accept an appointment with you, they realize that something's off and they need some help and they want to talk to somebody who's maybe going to be able to help them out. So it always starts with, hey, why are we here? There's an alignment. But to your point, there's always this disarming that happens through personal stories, right? And yeah. so you'll see on Queer Eye, they'll do it, but they'll be get very deep personal stories that the Queer Eye guys are very transparent about who they are, right? The Fab Five. Like as one guy's having a conversation, the other guys are dancing around, trying on clothes, They're trying what he eats, spitting it out. Like they are themselves authentically... Purely as possible, so that that individual now goes, I know what I'm getting. Like, I know what these guys are all about. Then what happens? It's not like, hey, here's what we're going to do. It's, hey, listen, I know you had mentioned that you've got this issue and this issue, but we're seeing a couple other things that maybe you hadn't thought of, right? Like, what about this? What about this? Like, hey, you've got rosacea and all of your clothes are red, right? Like, that actually exacerbates it. Let's you know, there's an opportunity for us to choose clothes that are going to make you feel better and really dumb down that look, right? And then we're going to give you a skin cream routine. So that goes, like all that kind of stuff where they're they're diagnosing issues that they didn't know they had and assigning emotion to them by saying, hey, like, wouldn't it be great to be able to walk out and feel comfortable and confident again? That's what we're going to be able to do. And here's the logic that supports it. And then when all of that is collected, they're like, hey, here's the, the three things that we're really going to focus on. We're going to fix this. Like, we're going to redo your apartment and make it so that, like, you feel great again. We're going to redo your, what you eat. And you like, so we're going to make you more healthy. And we're going to give you a haircut and give you kind of a makeover. And when we're done, you're going to be living your best life. You're going to have a clean, like all that stuff. And the individual is just like, yeah, like, where do I sign up? Again, there was never... A time at any of those stories where the Fab Five are sitting there with their logo slide, right? Here's all the people (laughs) that I've helped, and here's all the awards that I've won, and here's where I'm located, and here's what I do. Like, no, that would be the boringest show in the history of the earth. If in reality makeover TV or B2B, right? B2B presentation choreography, align, disarm through a story and being transparent, make a diagnosis, teach them something, make them smarter about their business, not yours. Back it up with emotion and logic, and then make a recommendation at the end, not at the beginning. Lead to your solution instead of leading with it. That flip tells a great story. And just like in the reality makeover TV shows, you'll all be crying and hugging and going, we're going to be friends forever. And that's exactly what you want in the B2B world too, isn't it?
0: Oh man, all day long. And I just, I just feel like there's so much... There's so much room for growth. I mean, I was watching Shark Tank the other day, and I'm obsessed with it, man. I find it hilarious, so I'm just, I'm just binging it on YouTube. And every single pitch looks and feels the same. And you, you and I spoke earlier about us being creatures of habit and also the moment we do something unpredictable it's a pattern interrupt and that's what i see the the people who tell incredible stories and do something different are the ones who capture attention and hey in today's market attention is a currency you know what i'm saying Hi. you know yeah. on that on that topic of storytelling todd something in your book that you speak about is about ultimately having other people tell your story Because one, it's more powerful, but two, there's nothing more impactful than a customer raving about you and talking about how great you are, right? So you actually define it as references and using it as a tool to, as I said, tell a story about your company's ability to solve somebody's problem. Now, you mentioned that a lot of people, when they're asking for, hey, could you be a reference and tell our company story? They start with the word me and end with the word us, meaning keeping it fully focused on the seller me and keeping it fully focused on us the business but you have a beautiful reframe in the book which really made me go mad if somebody said that I'd do that I'd want to do that could you talk
1: to that reframe for a second well yeah there's there's two things really that I've been talking about more it's evolved a little bit since the book too but number one is you know being a reference it's like you know my most valuable currency is my time right? The most yeah. valuable thing in my inventory that I can convert to revenue is my time. And it's never going to be any earlier than it is right now. And we've got to yeah. have empathy for the individuals that we're asking to be references too. Like, what do they get out of it? Nothing like, Oh, just the, the cherishing moment of helping like great, but there's only so much of that they can do. And we overuse references anyway. And so number one is when you're thinking about your references and the ones that you develop and the ones that you ask, you know, framing it so that it's valuable for them. And that's the way that we always did it, even at Power Reviews, is that when we had a customer that even wasn't asking for a reference, we would talk to one of our current customers and just be like, hey, listen, you two are in the same space. You two know a lot of people. Like, just like, you know, we were talking before we hit record about how important it was for me as a CRO to connect with other CROs. If I, as a salesperson, could be a facilitator for connecting, let's say I'm selling to SVPs of e commerce, for connecting those individuals to share ideas, to share stories, to share the pros and the cons of different things that they're doing, that's the way that I always sought to do it. So, proactively saying, hey, I'm working with you, Ravi, and you know, you're looking at my solutions, for me to go talk to one of my current customers that sounds and looks a little bit about like, what your business does and has some of the same interests to be able to say, hey, Ravi, I've got this individual over here, and you know they're a customer of ours. So you could talk about that, but I think it would just be a great connection for you too. And then to be able to have that conversation with my current customer that, hey, listen, I got this guy I've been talking to. He's fantastic. He's got great ideas. I would love to connect the two of you. I think you guys would get along famously and learn from each other and you know help avoid mistakes proactively and all of that. We would end up, Doing reference calls for customers that they never even asked for it. But here's the second thing that I want you to think about. One of the things that, you know, we established very early that when we're reading reviews online, when we're gonna buy something we haven't bought before that matters, we skip the five-star reviews and we read the fours, threes, twos, and ones first. That's just what we do. And a product that's got negative reviews on it, i.e., on average a four, two to a four, five star rating on a five-star scale sells better than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. When you're thinking about using a reference, as a reference myself for different people, there's a lot of pressure on me because I feel like I'm having to sell for you, right? And I got to paint this picture that, oh, it's been perfect. It's been wonderful. For the buyer, that's actually not valuable, right? Five-star reviews aren't very valuable to you, are they? Why would they be to your buyers when talking to a reference? So, We would always encourage our references to be like, hey, the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, right? If there was something about the process that you wish you had done differently, tell them that. If there was something that you didn't know walking in, tell us that, but tell them that, right? We want them to have a great experience with us, but it's about setting accurate expectations, not about selling a five-star solution when we all know it's not. And that ended up creating more comfortable conversations for our references, but it also opened up more references too. Like the customers that had had bad experience that, you know, weren't perfect, they could be great references for us. And they were, they were our best references, right? So those two things, make it valuable for the reference, create connections, help them learn from one another. And then number two, encourage your references to not speak five star speak because you're not. Tell the truth. If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. And that's where the magic starts to happen. Dude,
0: it's so funny you mentioned that. I remember in my time in sales leadership, I was hiring a sales development rep and there was something that just felt off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. It just, everything looked too perfect. So I said, yo dude, hit me up with a couple of references so I could really get an understanding of who you are as a person. And he says, yeah, there's this person who was my previous manager. They weren't my overall leader, but they were my manager. I said, cool, I'll hop on the phone with this dude. And it was 12 minutes of this person is incredible. He can sell ice to an Eskimo. And firstly, Eskimos don't need ice. So why would you do that? But you get what I'm saying? And I was like, man, I'm baffled. Like there's something that feels off. Anyway, I went against my intuition. And I did hire him and very quickly, unfortunately, we had to separate and depart ways because it didn't turn out to be what we both thought it would. But sometimes our gut is right because, hey, perfection doesn't sell because it doesn't exist. And man, I tell you what, I feel like you and I could kick it for about (laughs) another hour and do round two. But ladies and gents, that's Todd Capone hitting us with his golden nuggets. Man, before we finish up here, As you know, the show is called The Influential Communicator. So I'd love to know in this chapter of your life, who is somebody you are absorbing? Who's somebody you're learning from right now, who you would consider an influential communicator? And what is one thing they do differently?
1: Does it have to be somebody who's living? (laughs) No, no. I can't bring them on the show, but yeah. Okay. Go for it. Well, yeah. I mean, I've got a mentor that has been really, really valuable to me. His name's Scott Anschutz. I talk to him once a month and he kicks my ass and it's awesome. But you know, I'm being the the sales history nerd. And by the way, for anybody who's interested, I have a podcast I just do for fun. It's called the Sales History Podcast, where I share stories from a hundred plus years ago that are 15 to 20 minutes long. It's really popular. I just do it to unload. And I've got At Sales Historian on both Instagram and Twitter, I post daily things from sales history, not for revenue, not for anything other than it's a hobby. So if anybody's interested in that, check it out. But in my opinion, the greatest of all time, the goat of sales philosophers is a guy named Arthur Sheldon. Arthur Sheldon back in 1903 set the foundation for what selling is today. So much of what we do, our processes, our structures, our methodologies came from that guy. In 1903, he wrote a number of books. He's got a quote that I love, you know, the the Arthur Dunn quote, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. I use a lot. But Arthur Sheldon's quote is, true salesmanship is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go. The science of service. Sales, our profession, was originally designed to be a service profession meaning that we are providing a service. We're doing the homework for the customer, the pros, the cons, the outcomes focused on them. And we lost that grasp, right? And we're trying to get that back. I see lots of good signs, but Arthur Sheldon is that guy. He laid that foundation. He did it with quotes and concepts and such a passion. The stories he tells are unbelievable. And so when I think about the GOAT for me and what I'm learning so much from, it's from a guy that's been gone for 90 something plus years, Arthur Sheldon, the goat of sales philosophers.
0: I love that, man, because I don't think anybody who I've ever interviewed on this show has mentioned anybody really within the Latin, I mean... Yeah, nobody that that long ago, you know, and that's that's where it all began, it sounds as though. And you're educating me on that, man. So I appreciate you for that. Yeah, I'm going to have to check out his work, man. I'm going to have to check out his work. But listen, dude, as we head up on to finish up this episode, sales kickoff season is approaching and you're up to some cool things on some cool projects. How can people hire you to speak at their SCO or RKO? And how can they learn more about what you're up to, brother?
1: Yeah, I mean, the easiest way is either toddcapone.com, my website, where I share all kinds of nonsense on there, videos, blogs, there's all kinds of free stuff. And then the programs, you can reach out to me through there. Or LinkedIn, I share a lot of my nonsense there. So follow along or connect. If you're going to connect, let me know where you heard me. That helps an awful lot. So you know, tell me you were on, you know, you're listening to the show. But either way, would love to be a resource for you and your teams. And uh, Ravi. Appreciate you having me on, man. This has been a blast.
0: Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, man. Ladies and gents, if you enjoyed today's episode, you know what you need to do, right? You know exactly what you need to do. I want you to take a screenshot of wherever you're listening to this right now. Tag Todd and myself on your social platform of choice and let us know what is the one thing that you took away from today's episode that connected with you the most. Let us know, people. Let us know. Now, I'll see you next week, same time, same place for another episode of The Influential Communicator. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast. Platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value so hey the more the word gets out about this podcast the more people we can gather on this mission so if you could support me then hey That would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you, all right? I'll see you on the other side.